The future could be brilliant. A personal inquiry into why much of the world seems crazy and what to do about it. Part 1. The Great Puzzle The Great Puzzle began for me when I was taken to Stonehouse Railway Station in South Lanarkshire as a very young boy in the early 1950s. My mother was taking my brother and I into Glasgow by train, steam train. In those days, going to Glasgow was referred to as going to town, and we dressed smartly for the occasion. You may imagine the excitement and drama as the sight, sound and smell of this wonderful invention entered the station, a 1950s jet-black puffing steam train was surely designed to thrill young children. However, something stood out to me that was surprising and strange. As we approached the carriages to board the train, I noticed that they were numbered 1, 2 and 3 in large letters. My mother explained that this was first, second and third class and that we would go into a second class compartment. Now why at such a young age, and given the appeal of everything else going on, I should puzzle over this so much, I can't say, but puzzle I did. This was the beginning of the great puzzle for me, of why the world was the way it was, because much of it made no sense. I was not aware that there were first, second and third class people. This was completely out with my experience, and given the sharpness and curiosity of a young child, must surely have been there for me to observe. So how had I missed this? Part of the reason I soon realised was that there were virtually no first-class people getting on and off our train. These carriages were strangely empty. In our village, there were no first-class people to observe. It was only later, when I went to the Isle of Mull, that I encountered the first-class people for the first time. We went to Mull via Oban and another wonderful steam train in the second-class compartment, of course. But there were a few people in the first-class compartments and when we got to Mull to visit relations, I found out that this was where many of them lived. Now, although I loved my Mull relations and Mull people, these were not the first-class people. They were second or third class like ourselves. The first class people were entirely different. First of all, they mostly lived in very large imposing houses, much larger than anything I'd seen before. Secondly, they tended to wear a kind of tweedy uniform and speak very loudly in a strange accent. Thirdly, they acted as if they owned the world, which, as I grew up, I discovered that they did. These first-class people not only had large houses, but they also had most of the land. Estates, they were called, which included most of the mountains, moors, bogs, burns, lochs, forests and farmland. The second and third-class people generally lived in small outposts, with some scraps of land from which they struggled to make a living. Not only did the first-class people own the majority of the land, they did not, on the whole, actually live in it. They simply used their estates for holidays. And what they did in their holidays 
was to me very, very strange indeed. They killed things. Deer, rabbits, hare, birds, fish, virtually anything that moved. Killing was what they did for fun. It's important to say here that not all landowners were strange, weird people, anything but. Many were likeable and friendly and had no side to them, and many did not kill for pleasure. This was difficult, as it would have been convenient to assume the prejudice I was becoming aware of, between one class and another, one nationality and another, one race and another, but it didn't fit all the facts I could observe. Politics grew on the horizon as I got older, and I was attracted to this as a way to resolve the inequalities and injustices that I became more and more aware of. The contrast between the privileged country estate owners in Mull and the disadvantaged poor who lived in large housing estates in Lanarkshire and Glasgow was strong motivation. The more I learned of inequalities and injustices, the less the whole thing made sense. Why was the world like this? And why did the political system seem unable to solve it? More than anything, it seemed such a stupid way for the tribe to organise things. Growing awareness of global inequalities revealed a greater madness, where, for many people, famine and death from starvation were never far away, and yet others, often living nearby, had obscene amounts of wealth. Segregation in the USA and South Africa were important issues of this time. I was too naive and blind to my own culture to realise that we too had a segregation system based on class and wealth that was advertised every day on the side of railway carriages but was regarded as just normal. The story of the First and Second World Wars added deeply to the puzzle. The wars themselves were shocking and horrendous and incomprehensible, but learning about concentration camps and gas chambers and genocide took things to a level of madness beyond anything I could understand. How could one group of people treat others with such callous and brutal cruelty and yet appear to be completely untouched by what they had done? Life in the streets of Lanarkshire added to my growing awareness of what I now knew to be called man's inhumanity to man. Hardman culture predominated. This was different from being strong, tough and competitive. Hardman culture seemed to be all about developing a false persona of not having feelings, of learning to be cold, cruel and insensitive. Finding victims to dominate was a favourite sadistic hardman sport. Many people acted in an aggressive way to hide their sense of inadequacy and to avoid being picked on. Catholic boys who occasionally attended my secondary school in Lark Hall were attacked because they were Catholic. Again, this made no sense to me. I had been brought up in a Protestant household, but we were taught tolerance. The war was clearly not over in Lanarkshire, and intolerance stalked the streets in a random and dangerous way. So the great puzzle continued to intrigue me as I learned more and more about our crazy world and the distortions in human culture. Listen to the news any day of the week and you're likely to think that nothing has changed. 
In fact, in many ways things seem to be getting worse. From bombings to beheadings, the stories of human suffering seem endless. But we're slowly waking up to something even more ominous, potentially the greatest danger we've ever faced. Nature is seriously struggling to cope with our lifestyle. We appear to be on the brink of irreversible environmental damage. The canaries are dying, those species that warn us of danger, yet very few people seem to be registering just how serious this is. In case you haven't heard, we've lost 60% of planetary wildlife in the last 40 years. A 60% decline of mammals, birds, fish, reptiles and amphibians. This is on top of the horrendous toll our activities have taken in the years preceding this. Recent research in nature reserves across Germany has shown the staggering loss of three quarters of flying insect populations over the last three decades. This has prompted dire warnings that we're on the brink of ecological Armageddon, with profound impacts on human society. There's only a fraction left of the incredible richness and diversity we evolved out of. In fact, the runt of wildlife left is being weakened and undermined as each day passes. Human activity is continuing to destroy wildlife at a suicidal rate. As it says in the introduction to our World Wildlife Fund Living Planet report, this account is not for the faint-hearted. In less than two human generations, population sizes of vertebrate species have dropped by over half. These are the living forms that constitute the fabric of the ecosystems which sustain life on Earth and the barometer of what we are doing to our own planet, our only home. We ignore their decline at our peril. We are using nature's gifts as if we had more than just one Earth at our disposal. By taking more from our ecosystems and natural processes than can be replenished, we are jeopardizing our very future. Nature conservation and sustainable development go hand in hand. They are not only about preserving biodiversity and wild places, but just as much about safeguarding the future of humanity, our well-being, economy, food security and social stability. Indeed, our very survival. Warnings of the impending sixth great mass extinction in the history of the planet seem to be falling on deaf ears. Even though this is the kind of event that has previously taken life 10 to 30 million years to recover from. We're not somehow magically immune from this. We'd be foolish to imagine that we can sit back in our comfortable living rooms and watch the whole thing unravel in the telly and then carry on as normal. The writing is on the wall, especially the harbour wall, given potential for sea level rise. Yet our elected representatives, the tribal elders, seem particularly reluctant and half-hearted in taking sufficient action to save us. Why? Is this a distortion of human culture, or just the way it is? Are humans just flawed animals, doomed to destruction whatever we do? Are there simply too many of us? Are we too greedy, too cruel, too selfish, and too stupid to even notice that the house is on fire. 
was Private Fraser right? Are we all doomed, Captain Mannering? Human knowledge has moved on a lot since I was a youngster. You may be surprised to learn, as I was, that a quiet miracle has been going on, a friendly revolution that is based on growing insight into human nature. We now know why human culture is so seriously distorted and why we seem so out of harmony with the rest of the natural world. You may also be surprised to learn that humans might not be as intrinsically flawed as you've been led to believe. There is, in fact, hope that not only can future disaster be averted, but that the future could actually be brilliant. I appreciate that it can be hard to be optimistic given our current difficulties, yet it can be at the most arduous of times that the opportunity for positive change is most likely to come about. Fritjof Capra, in his popular book from 1982 called The Turning Point, observes that all civilizations naturally rise and fall. As the old order starts to wane, the seeds of the new order are already taking root. There's a point when the declining curve of the old order is crossed by the rising curve of the new, and almost overnight, without violence, the new order becomes ascendant, the dominant force in society. Fritjof quotes from the ancient Chinese I Ching or Book of Changes. After a time of decay comes the turning point. The powerful light that has been banished returns. There is movement, but it is not brought about by force. The movement is natural, arising spontaneously. For this reason, the transformation of the old becomes easy. The old is discarded and the new is introduced. Both measures accord with the time, therefore no harm results. My reading of all that's happening is that we could be in the cusp of this kind of radical change. It's been said that people will not change until they experience the results of their behaviour. Surely only those with their heads in the sand could miss the loss of over half of all wild animals in the last 40 years and not be deeply disturbed. The reality is slowly dawning that we've got ourselves into a situation in which the stakes could not be higher. It's at times like this that people become willing to take action. And the remarkable thing is, we now have the insights and understandings to make the kind of changes required to genuinely transform our world to create a remarkable future. What I'd like to do over this series of short programmes is to share with you some crucial insights from my own inquiry into why the world is crazy and about what we can do about it. In the next episode, so why are we so seriously out of kilter with the rest of nature?